for listening to the weekly podcast of Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. We hope you've enjoyed this sermon from our series entitled The Advent. For more information about CBC or how you can get plugged in, visit the website cbcsavannah.com. Father, thank you for these little ones and we can teach them just simple truths, but yet great truths. Uh, I pray as a church that just from babies to just to grown adults, that people would be hearing about you and what you have done, especially what a great privilege at this time of year where things just naturally flow uh, just from you and towards you. And so I just pray uh, as a church that we would not lose sight of that, the simplicity of the message of Christmas one that we often just blow by because we think we know it, but Lord, it's something that you desire for us to know for all eternity. And so as we just talk about that today, just give me the words. Um, I am by far the least worthy to, to come and share your, your message this morning, but yet you've called me to do it. And so I ask, because you have called me to do so, that you would empower me by your spirit to do it. Uh, I pray for our church, that just that all those things we've talked about, the hope and the peace and the joy and even what we talk about today, these will be clear and evident and realities in our church and in our lives. And so we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are in our fourth week of our Advent series where we have just every week been looking and examining different aspects of the, of the Christmas story. And so we've looked at different people, their responses, their roles in the first Christmas, in the first Advent. And so we looked at Zechariah and we talked about hope a little bit and how he had his son was going to be pointing to the Messiah. We looked at Mary and the chaos of her life, but yet she had peace. Last week, we, we looked at the Magi who came from a long way away, and they had joy because they had found the pearl of great price, uh, because they had found the treasure in the field. Um, and there's one more person we're going to look at this week as we continue in Advent. And, you know, we, often at Christmas, we get caught up in all the people and all the stories, and we often leave out the one to whom it is all about in the first place. Uh, so today, the fourth person we're going to evaluate and examine and talk about is the Lord Jesus himself, uh, as, we, as we celebrate really this Christmas Sunday. Um, and I, here's my goal. I always tell you things up front, and then I'm reminded by other people afterwards, you said you were going to do this, and you did this. So I'm going to say I'm going to do this, but I'm probably going to do a little bit of this too, so I'm just telling you, all right, just ahead of time. So they're like, you said this, but you did this. Well, I'm going to do both. Okay, that's just the way it is. But really, what I want to do, I want to answer one question this morning as we look at God's word. I, I wanna answer the question, why? I, I wanna ask Jesus, why Bethlehem? Why the manger? Why all the angels? Why all the hubbub? Why do we light the candles? Why do we sing the songs? Why Jesus? And, and to find that answer, we're just gonna go to the source himself. We're going to go to the Lord Jesus and look at what he says, because he, is, he does answer. He tells us why. Not as a baby, because babies don't talk, but as a grown man. And so we're going to look at some passages today where Jesus is going to tell us, you want to know why? This is why. And he's going to be very clear. And in so, we're going to see the final theme of our Advent. Right, the final theme that we celebrate today. So we're going to look at a couple different passages this morning. So we're going to be flipping around a little bit in the Bible. Uh, but before we do, I, I, we have to start at a certain place. We have to establish something. Okay, we got we to establish right up front, who is the Lord Jesus? 
right? Because we can talk about all these things, but if we don't know who we're talking about, then it means nothing. So what I wanna do real quick is I I wanna establish it before we get into what the Lord Jesus said. And to do so, I want you to turn to John chapter one, just real quickly, John chapter one. Because when we understand who the Lord Jesus is, then it'll, it'll, mean, it'll mean so much more when we find out why. Why did he come? And, I, and what I told you last week as we've been working through these gospels, there's some of the gospel narratives. Each gospel has a, a specific audience in mind. Each author is writing to a specific audience audience. And so Matthew, we looked at last week, he was writing to the nation of Israel, showing them that, that, that Jesus of Nazareth was their promised Messiah. John, remember, he was one of the 12. He was a young guy. He had a brother named James. They were real fiery and real edgy. They were called the sons of thunder. Okay. They were always getting in trouble because they always wanted to beat everyone up. Right. And Jesus said, no, 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 you can't do that. Right. But at the end of his life, he's like, Mr. Love, read first John, love, 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 love. But here's a guy who They tried to kill him by boiling him in water. He wouldn't boil, he wouldn't die. So what do they do? They put him on an island. That's all all you can do with a guy like that. And so in that island is where he writes the book of Revelation. That's who we're talking about when we're talking about the gospel of John. And John's audience is to everybody. He's the one gospel writer that says, "My, my gospel, the one I am writing, my account is for everybody. And he has one goal in his gospel. And he's the only gospel writer out of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He's the only one where at the end of the book, he says, this is the goal of my my gospel. This is the goal of of this book that I have written. He says this, Jesus did many signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written, but these are written. Why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life. His, his audience is everybody, and this is a book with one goal, that you would come to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, right? This is a book about his life, about his work, a man he knew, a man he spent time with, a man he loved. He was not some ghost that kind of showed up and went away. He ate, he drank, he got tired, he slept, and John knew him. And he, his goal is that the reader would understand who he is. He is the Son of God, and that you would believe in him. That's the goal of the gospel. And so it's no surprise the way John starts his gospel. John puts everything up front. No kind of building up to the dramatic end. I know some of you have already seen the movie and some of you are like, don't tell me what happens. Han and Chewie are brother and really brothers. That's, that's, that's a spoiler. Okay, they're not. Luke is, is married to Chewie right now. But what he does here is instead of like building up to the end where you find out the big dramatic Oh, he just tells you the end up front. He wants you to know right up front what this book is about. No spoilers, no dramatic reveal. He wants to tell you that Jesus is God. And so here's how he starts. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. He was in the beginning with God. It starts out like another book. Doesn't it sound real familiar? In the beginning, right? In the beginning, God created. In the beginning was the word. And you notice the word, the word word is capitalized. Why is that? Because the editors come to realize that when, when he's talking about the word here, he is talking about the Lord Jesus. All right, and, and that's revealed later on. But the, he says, Jesus is the word. In the beginning was the word. Why does he call Jesus the word? It's the same thing he does in the book of Revelation. When Jesus comes back, he's wearing a robe and his, on his robe is written his name, the word of God. 
So why does he call him the word? Because in the person of Christ, the truth of God is, is so unified in such a way that Jesus in his coming and his work and his death and his resurrection and his rising, it was the final decisive word of God. It is God's truth. He is truth. When Jesus is baptized, God the Father says, this is my son, listen to him. Everything he does, everything he says, everything he has done, everything he accomplishes is truth. He is the truth of God. And so he says, in the beginning was the word, was the truth. In the beginning, before there was anything, before there was the cosmos, before there was anything created, when it was just God, no angels, no heaven, no anything, when it was just God, the word, Jesus, was there. He was there in the beginning. And he was with God. And already you start to see this doctrine of the Trinity unfold and, and be revealed in the New Testament. God the Father was there, right? And so was the word. God the word, Jesus, was there. And in case there's any doubt, he says the beginning was the word, the word was with God the Father, the word was God. That Jesus in the beginning, was already God. Not only was he there in the beginning before anything was created, he was already God. This is why his brother, Jude, when he writes his little letter at the end, he says, to him be all glory before time and forever. Why? Because the Lord Jesus has always been. And I know that's a little bit mind-boggling. That's because we see in a mirror darkly, but one day, face to face, we don't completely get it grasp it, but he was God, is God, will always be God. And, and we have to talk about that right up front because you're going to hear stuff, especially nowadays, well, Jesus never really meant for those apostles to say that he was God and that was something that came afterwards. That is not true. Throughout the gospels, Jesus claims to be God. In John chapter 10, Pharisees pick up stones, they're gonna chuck them at him to kill him. He says, for what good deed do you kill me? Do you stone me? And they say, not for a good deed, because you, being a man, have made yourself out to be God. Why? Because he did, because he was. One of my favorite miracles, he's, Jesus is teaching in a house, it's packed, no one can get in. These guys bring their paralytic buddy, they tear the roof open, they drop him in. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And everyone says, who can forgive sins but God? And Jesus says to them, he says, which is harder to tell this guy to get up and walk or tell him that his sins are forgiven. But to show you that the son of man has authority to forgive sins, he says, get up and walk. Boop, he gets up and walk. Why? Because he was God and he claimed to be so and he has always been the one true God. That, that's what we believe. There's not many roads. Jesus is the one true God. He was God, he is God, he will always be God. He was not made God. So when those guys come to your door at an ungodly hour on Saturday morning and are knocking and you send the kids, what they're gonna tell you is, well, we believe Jesus is the son of God. They believe he's the son of God, but not in the same way we believe he's the son of God. They believe that he was created the son of God, that he was made a little lesser than God the Father, right? When you really evaluate, but that can't be possible because of what he says in verse three. He says, all things were made through him. Everything you see, everything that has ever been made was made through the Lord Jesus. Without him was not anything that was made was made. So nothing that was created was not made by Jesus. So here's their problem. If Jesus is created, then, then he didn't create all things because he didn't create himself. 
If he is the creator of all things, yet created, then, then this doesn't make any sense. So what they do in their Bible is they add a, a key word. They write, all other things were made through him. They do. They add it to their Bible to change their, their perspective. But understand, that's not what the text says. The text says he is God. He was creator. He did, he did this before. He was the, around before everything. He is eternal. He is God. Right? But here's what he did do. Verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelled among us. That Jesus became a man. That he, to his deity, added humanity. That he is, is 100% God, fully God, but at the same time now he is 100% man, fully man. Again, how does he have two dual natures? I see in a mirror darkly, one day face to face. Does, how does 200% work? He's not 50% God, 50% man. He is 100% God. He is 100% man. He will always be that way. And, and that's the miracle of the incarnation. But we gotta grasp that up front because understanding that Jesus is true God of true God, true light of true light, it makes why, the why question that much more stunning. All right? Jesus is God. And so... Let's ask him, why then did you become a man? Why did you leave the glories of heaven and become a man? Why did you add humanity, Lord Jesus, to your deity? Why? Let me, we're just gonna look at two quick passages and let him answer, all right? Both of them say almost the exact same thing. He's gonna say, the son of man came, boom, he's gonna tell us. The first one is in Mark chapter 10. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. I'll, I'll have some of the slides on there. And this is a passage, honestly, that, John the Apostle would probably not like us to read because it's not very, not very nice of him. Doesn't speak well of him, but we're gonna look at it anyway. And, and the setting is this. James and John, the two brothers, they come up to Jesus, right? And they say this to him. Jesus, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Matthew says they brought their mama with them and their mama asked. Brave men, these guys. Get mama to ask Jesus. But notice, they said, we want you to do whatever we want. But they don't tell him what they want because they want him to promise first so that they can get whatever they want. He says, what do you want, what do you want me to do for you? And they go on and tell him, Jesus, we want to sit right next to you in the kingdom. I mean, you can, you can have first place. But can we have second and third? We'll give you the gold because you're God. But we really would like the silver and the bronze. That's what we want. And the other 10 disciples are mad, not because they think it's just, an, what an arrogant statement. I can't believe they'd ask it. Because they're thinking, man, why didn't we ask for that? I should be at the silver. I should be at the bronze. And Jesus does this. I love this. Jesus called them to him. This is Jesus gathering them in. This is what, like when I go to my kids and I'm like, all right, guys, everyone on the couch. And everyone's like, oh. dad's gonna preach for 45 minutes. Even the dog is hiding at that point. Right, because it's, it's teaching time, right? And so Jesus brings the disciples and he says, come here. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. They're great ones exercise authority. You, what he's saying is this. Everyone thinks greatness is being able to tell people what to do. Having authority, being in charge, being important. That's what everyone thinks greatness is, right? Even still today. He says, but it shall not be among you. Is not the way it is among us. Whoever will be great, you want to be great? You want to sit next to me? You got to be the servant. 
You want the gold medal? You want the silver medal? You want the bronze? You, you, you got to be slave of all. Right? Two different words, servant and slave. Lowest of low. You want to be the best? You got to serve. And here's the key statement. Now, here's where we get to the why, Jesus. Why did you come? Look what he says. For, it explains it. For even the Son of Man, even me, even God, even creator, even sustainer, true light of true light, true God of true God, even me, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. That's not what you would expect from God, is it? If God comes to earth, what you expect is, I did not come to serve, but to be served, and to you to give your life for, to be. That's what we would expect. But that's not what he says, right? The, the sustainer came. And here's, here's the first answer to the question, why? You want to know why, Bethlehem? Because Jesus came to serve us. He came to serve us. And this is radical. Think about this. Think about your boss, your most important person in your life. Maybe it's the general. Maybe it's the president of the company. Maybe it's the principal. Maybe it's the president of the college. Maybe whoever it is, right? How likely is it for them to say, I would like to come to your house. Not you go to their house. I would like to come to your house and do all your chores. I want to clean, I want to clean your toilets for you. I want to, uh, kids, uh, uh, you got pooper scooper duty. I want to do that for you. I want to do the laundry. I want to dust up under the, the bed and the TV. I want to take out the trash. I want to cut your grass. Um, I'll clean out the gutters. I'll change your oil. All those emails you're backlogged on. I want to catch up on all those things. I want to serve you. How likely is your boss going to do that this week? I mean, I'm the dad, and my wife, my wife says, honey, could you take out the trash? I'm like, we have four of these trash taker-outers at the house. <laughs> okay? That's why we had them. <laughs> so I don't do that anymore, right? That's but God came to serve you and me. Somebody infinitely greater than your boss, than the president. And... and you gotta, you gotta go back to the why, I mean the who. This is why the who is so important. I was walking the dog this week and, and you can see, as you walk down my road, you can kind of, the canopy of the trees kind of splits and you can see the stars and it was, it was stunning how clear the sky was. I could see Orion and I could see that the stars were like twinkling and my, I had just preached last Sunday on the Magi and my mind went to the star and the Magi and I just thought about my God created those stars that are a billion miles away. And he came to serve me. This is why who he is makes all the difference. Because if he's just a normal Israeli carpenter, then, then no biggie. But if he is true God of true God, if he is the, the God of the universe, the sustainer of everything, it's flabbergasting, which is why Peter who I think only partially at that point gets it, when Jesus strips down and says, I'm gonna wash your feet, which is the lowest of the low task in the house. It was for the lowest servant. And he starts washing the disciples' feet and he comes to Peter and he's like, you are not washing my feet, Lord. No way. He said, if, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. He says, you'll get it later. You'll get it. 
after. That's why it's so stunning to Peter, right? And, and here's the beauty for us as a church today is that the Lord Jesus is still serving his church. Not in a way where you're commanding him, don't get me wrong, but he is still using all his divine attributes and, and everything he has to walk with you, to comfort you when you're afflicted, to encourage you when you are down, when you got all these people coming next week that, that you're gonna be super annoyed with because they're gonna mess with your thermostat and they're gonna slam doors in the middle of the night and they're gonna put their feet up on the couch and they're gonna eat your favorite something that was in the closet hidden from the kids. <laughs> when they do that, the Lord Jesus is serving you. He's giving you the strength and the patience to love them. He's supporting the weak. Right now, he is still using all his divine resources to seek the good of his church. You wanna know why Jesus came to serve? And he, and he tells how in the rest of the verse that he came to serve, how and give his life as a ransom. We're gonna come back to that, but I wanna go to the next passage where Jesus is asked kind of the same question and he gives the why. Turn, flip to the right again, Luke 19. This is one of my favorite passages. And, and Jesus is in his last week of ministry. He's headed to the cross. He is going through Jericho. And in Jericho is a bad dude. He is the chief tax collector of Jericho. And if you think people don't like the IRS now, and that day, a hundred times worse. Hated him. Because what, what the tax collectors in those days were, they were Jewish, but they were collecting taxes for Rome. So they were seen as traitors. And, and they didn't get a salary from Rome. So what they would do is Rome would say, here, you charge everyone 10%. And so what they would do is they would charge 20% and they would get to keep the 10%. And that's how they got super rich when everyone else was super poor. And so they were hated. They were despised. The only friends they had were other tax collectors. And this guy we're gonna look at, he is the king of the tax collectors in Jericho. He's the chief. And he hears Jesus is coming through. And he wants to see him. But here's his problem, he's short. And let me just tell you this right now. God loves short people. David was short. Nehemiah was short. Zacchaeus is short. And so what does he do? He's seeking to see Jesus, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. And so he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And he's probably thinking, he'll never see me. I just want to see him because he assumes that Jesus would never want anything to do with a wicked person like him. But I just want to see what all the hubbub is about. And imagine his surprise when Jesus walking by stops. Jesus came to the place and he looks up. He stops and he looks up. And I... I I guarantee there's a smile on his face. And he says, Zacchaeus, come on, hurry and come down. I must stay at your house. Not I wanna stay, not it's the nicest house in town, which it probably was. I must, it is necessary is what the Greek text says. This is part of my mission, Zacchaeus, to stay at your house. And by the way, did you notice that he knows his name? How does he know his name? Because he knew him before the foundation of the world. Because when he was in his mother's womb, he formed him. Because he chose him, because he wrote his name down in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. That's how he knows his name. Zacchaeus, come with me. And Zacchaeus, in his joy, almost falls down the tree, I'm thinking. 
He hurries down and he, and, and he received him joyfully. And he's the only one who's joyful because all the religious people hate it. And when they saw, they grumbled. He's gone into the guest to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. Religious people hate when, when people love on sinners. You realize that? But yet, what is Jesus called? A friend of sinners. They hate it. Zacchaeus is joyful, and this encounter with Jesus changes him. Jesus pursuing him, seeking him, calling his name, going to his house, it changes. So Zacchaeus, when, when he's at his house, he stood and he said to the Lord, behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it. He says, I give every, half of what I got is gone. And if I've cheated anybody, and the Greek text, it's a first-class condition, which means it's assumed to be true. If I've defrauded anyone, and I have... I'm going to restore it fourfold, which in itself is a miracle because even the Old Testament law said all you had to do was give back what you cheated with 20%. He says, I'm gonna give back what I cheated with 400%. This is what we call repentance. And can you imagine the first time this happens? Zacchaeus goes up to a house. Little girl answers. Hey, I'm Zacchaeus. I'm here to see your dad, Simeon. Daddy, there's a man named Zacchaeus here. What does that guy want? I'm not due for another six months. What do you want, Zacchaeus? You haven't squeezed enough out of us already? Just wanted to give you this, Simeon. What is this? As he opens it up, it's a bag full of money. What is this, some kind of joke? No, it's... Over, it's your tax return. <laughs> Took more than I should have, and so here's your money back, just with a little interest and with a little wink, 400% to be exact. Peace, shalom, Simeon. And he, and he begins to walk out, and Simeon says, wait! What, what in the world has happened to you, Zacchaeus? I made a vow to the rabbi Jesus. You need to go see him. You need, to, you need to go hear him. And with that off, he goes to the next house. A changed man. And that's why Jesus says this in verse nine. Jesus said, today, salvation has come to this house since he also was the son of Abraham. He, he is an Israelite, he is a Jew, but it's not that just that he's a Jew that saves him. He has followed Abraham and that Abraham was the father of the faithful. He is the one who believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now Zacchaeus has followed father Abraham in believing in God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he is a changed man. But here's the beauty of the passage. Don't miss what Jesus says. He says he is saved. Now he, is, he, he has received salvation. But this is the why. Here comes the why again. For the Son of Man came. Why did the Son of Man come? To seek and to save the lost. This is the purpose of why Jesus came, to seek. People, understand, are not seeking God. God is seeking them. Jesus is the seeker, not me. Jesus is the finder, not me. The Son of Man came to seek and to save. Who found Zacchaeus? God found Zacchaeus. God was the one moving in Zacchaeus. And he, this is almost the exact same wording. The son of man came to seek and save. And this, this goes back to what he says in Mark. Remember what he said in Mark. 
I didn't come to be served, but to serve. How? And to give my life as a ransom. How does God seek? How does God save? How does he serve? He gives his life as a ransom. And you know what a ransom is. Someone is captive, someone is enslaved. And so what does someone do? They come and they make a payment to release them. That's a ransom, right? What is is the payment that Jesus made? What does he give to release the captives? He said, I give myself. I give myself. That's the payment. Him. And even, even highlights it, I give my life as a ransom. And that word for, it's the Greek word anti, which means in the place of, as a substitute. I give myself as a ransom, as a substitute for many. In the place of many. Because we were lost. We were captive. He said, where were we captive of? Sin. The power of sin. The, the punishment of sin. And you know, we... We don't talk about sin sometimes in a serious way. Yeah, sin, it's sin. I'm guilty of it. I think many of us are. It's just, oh, no big deal. Jesus died for sin. And he did. But remember the cost. What did it cost for you to be forgiven of sin? It cost God sending his son to die. The only payment for your sin was the death of the son of God. And if there was any other way God could have done it than to kill his own son, he would have done it. And even Jesus, if there was any other way to pay for your sin, he would have done it. He's in the garden saying, is there any other way, Father? There is no other way. You must die to pay for their sins because your sin deserves death. And this is why, again, going back to the who makes all the difference. Who died for your sin? The very one who you sinned against. And understand, when you sin, maybe you punch your brother. Don't do that. But maybe you did that. Maybe you, you, you slander somebody. You're not ultimately sinning against that person. You are sinning against God himself, against you and you alone I have sinned, is what David says, and done what is evil in your sight. But I thought you had adulterous affair with Bathsheba. I thought you killed Uriah. Yeah, he did. But ultimately, his sin was against God the Father. So when you sin, you sin against God. But yet God says, I'm, you're, I'm the one you sin against, but I'm the one who's going to pay for your sin. This is why the who means so much more. The very one that you offended is the one who is taking your place. It's that, that's the why. I came. Here's, here's, here's the big reason. Jesus, why did you come? I came to serve you. I came to seek you. I came to save you. I came to die. Jesus came for one ultimate goal. It was to die that we might be saved. And this was the plan from all eternity past, Acts 2. This was the predetermined, the definite plan of God from the beginning. Even right before in this passage in Mark chapter 10, right before the whole who wants to be on the right and left, Jesus tells the disciples, we're going to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death. They will deliver him to the Gentiles. They'll mock him, spit on him, flog him and kill him. And after three days, he'll rise. He tells them right up front, this is why I came. I am willingly walking into the jaws of death. I am intentionally choosing to die. It's the plan. This is why the angels come to Joseph and say, Joseph, you're gonna call him Jesus because he's gonna save his people from their sins. This is why Mary says, my soul rejoices in God, my savior. This is why the angels say, unto you is born this day a savior who is Christ the Lord. A savior God sends a savior. He doesn't, send, he doesn't send a politician because our greatest need is not better government. It is. 
We do need greater, better government, but that's not our greatest need. It's not that we need financial security or he sends an economist. It's not that we need another religion or he sends a religious leader. It's not that we need good health, he sends a doctor. He sends a savior because you are lost and you are perishing without him. A savior. This is the why. We just sang it earlier. Mild he lay, his glory by. Born that men no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Hark the herald, angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. And you say, why would, why would he love his enemies? Why would he love those who, who, who sinned against him? I don't know, <laughs> but he does. And that's, that's the fourth week of Advent, right? It's the week we think about Love, why does he come? Why does he serve? Why does he die? Why does he give his life as a ransom for many? Because he loves us. Jesus loves his people. He loves us. Christmas is just, it's a one big invitation into the love of Christ. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God demonstrated his love towards us and while we were sinners, Christ died for us. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. Paul, I've been crucified with Christ. It's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And this life that I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Titus, when God, the goodness and loving kindness of our Savior appeared, he saved us. First John 3, what, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. John 15, no greater love as someone than this, that he lays down his life for his brothers, for his friends. Why, Jesus? Because I love you. And think about this. He loves you and he knows all your junk. I'm not talking about the, oh, yeah, he sees when I'm mad in traffic, and yeah, he sees when I yell at the dog, and he sees when I, he sees everything. The stuff you don't tell nobody. The stuff that's going on in your mind. The thoughts. He loves you despite the fact that he knows that some of you are going to fall into that sin yet again this afternoon. The one that you're promising you're never going to do again. Doesn't change his love. I mean, that's, is that not dumbfounding? He still loves you. He still came to die for you. He loves you. And so if you're here this morning, you're like, I don't know about that. I've had a bad week. I feel, I feel in love. No one else loves you. No one, no one else cares you feel like. All you need to do is look at the manger and look at the cross and know that you are loved. That's what we celebrate this week. It's just a celebration that God in his great love sends his son to seek and save the lost, to serve and to give his life as a ransom. That is the love of Christ. And so if you're a Christian this morning, I know many of you are, the only application I can think for us is he loves us, so we love him back. We love God because he first loved us. Just express your love to him. And, and there's many different facets to that. Jesus says right after no greater love than lay down his life, he says, you love me 
If you, you're my friends if you follow me. Obedience is an act of love. Worship is an act of love. Right? But the church, our, our big application is love God. Love God. But if you're not a Christian this morning, the application is the same as Zacchaeus. Get out of your tree and go be with Jesus today. If you're here and you're not a Christian, then here's what I know. I know that God is seeking you because he brought you to hear about his great love today. It's not by accident. You think, oh no, it's just my neighbor invited me to church. God was prompting your neighbor to invite you to church and he got your alarm to go off so that you'd be here this morning so that you could hear how much he loves you. How much does he love you? He sent his son to die for you. That's how much. And so the only, the only response for you is, you like Zacchaeus, you turn from your sin and you embrace Christ as Savior and Lord and God. You put your faith in what he has done. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's your application. To come worship the King because he is true God of true God. He is true light from true light. And, and nothing else this Christmas ultimately matters. The presents are gonna be gone. The company will, praise the Lord, be gone. Kids will be back in school in just a few weeks. But the love of Christ forever, right? Faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love. And so let's just celebrate this morning the love of Christ. Let's bask in it, church. If I was William right now, I'd be like, let's bask in it, right? Well, I'm not William, so I won't do that. But it's a time to just revel in the love of Christ. And so what we're going to do is this, as churches traditionally do on this time of year. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table together, which is a picture of the love of Christ. And here's how we're going to do it. Men are going to pass it out. We've got a little special music for you to reflect and think. Hold the elements in your hand. Reflect on the love of Christ. Think about it. Thank God for it and then hold them and I will just come back up in just a few minutes and we will celebrate together as a church. And if you're a follower of Christ, whether you're a visitor or whether you're a member of another church this morning, we invite you, we have an open table for those who have put their faith in Christ, that you are welcome at this table with us to celebrate the love of Christ. Let me pray uh, and then we will worship together. Father, I thank you for your son and for his love for the great question to why, why did he come to seek and save? Why did he come to serve and give his life as a ransom? Because of his great love. And so just please, may that be refreshed in our hearts as we celebrate your table and as we sing and as we worship. Uh, and as we go back to our homes and think about why you came. Uh, thank you, Lord Jesus, for revealing this to us, for seeking us out like you sought Zacchaeus, for calling us out of our tree uh, when we would have, would have not come out on our own. Uh, thank you for opening our eyes to your truth. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.